1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Bora Ogunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: Before this week, if you looked at the post-pandemic recovery of the world's big economies, Britain looked to be the weak one. But statisticians just released some reworked numbers, and it's not too bad. We ask how the story changed so much.
2: And in the era of apps, there's something nostalgic about using a real pocket calculator. We have a summing up of its origins and its history. But first.
3: So, the other day,
4: I was watching this show called Citadel on Amazon Prime. Tom
2: Wainwright is The Economist, technology and media editor.
4: And it's this spy thriller starring Priyanka Chopra Jonas. In the opening scene, you've got this amazing fight that goes on on a high-speed train as it goes through the Alps in Italy. She's in a shootout with a load of other spies. It's really exciting, but if you pause the show, something really interesting, at least to video nerds like me, it gives you the option to buy more or less anything that you see in the programme. So you can buy Priyanka's red dress, you can buy her red stilettos, her gold chain that she's wearing. You can't yet buy the exploding perfume, but you can buy pretty much anything else in the programme. Citadel is reckoned to have cost Amazon about $300 million to make, which is really expensive. That makes it about the second most expensive TV show in history after Rings of Power, which was another Amazon show. But the reception wasn't great. The critics didn't love it. The ratings weren't fantastic. But the interesting thing is, it may be that Amazon can make a pretty good business out of video without necessarily going down all that well with either critics or even with audiences.
2: But Tom, isn't getting lots of viewers and good reviews a marker of success?
4: Yeah, it definitely isn't. It would be better for Amazon if all their shows were huge hits. But the thing is, what they're doing in video is slightly different from what most of the other streamers are doing. Amazon has come up with different ways of making money. One of them is advertising. Another of them is selling other people's content. And through doing that, it could be that Amazon is able to make money out of streaming without all its shows necessarily being monster hits.
2: OK, Tom, before we get into that in more detail, how big are Amazon streaming services?
4: They're really enormous, actually. Prime Video is about as big as Disney Plus in terms of the number of people who watch it. It gets about 155 million viewers monthly. Only Netflix is bigger than that. As well as that, it's got a service called Freevee, which is a free service with ads. That's reckoned to get maybe 40 million viewers a month. And it's got this hardware platform called Fire TV, which is basically internet connected TVs and streaming sticks. And that's huge as well. It outsells every brand apart from Samsung. It's got about 100 million devices in use at the moment worldwide. They've also got this thing called Twitch, which is a live streaming service online, which is mostly for gaming content. So all it's a really, really big video streaming operation.
2: Presumably, Amazon has lots of competitors in streaming. It's not an easy industry to crack. So Why are they spending so much on it?
4: I think there's a few reasons. I mean, the most obvious one that people all know about is that it makes the Prime membership more valuable. So as long as you're a Prime member, then you're much more likely to buy all the rest of your stuff on Amazon. I think there are a couple of other reasons, though, which are a bit less obvious and to me more interesting. One of them is advertising. At the moment on Prime Video, there's not very much in the way of ads. They've got a few ads alongside some of their sports coverage, but otherwise it's mostly ad-free. Most people think that's probably going to change pretty soon. So Netflix and Disney have recently introduced ads on their streaming service. And on the whole, people think that it's just a matter of time before Amazon joins them. The reason this is interesting is that Amazon has an amazing advertising operation. It's really alongside Google and Meta, which is the company that owns Facebook and Instagram. Amazon is the next biggest seller of digital ads worldwide. And video ads is one thing that it doesn't yet do. But if and when it does, it's going to be a big force in that area because it knows a lot about you. It's got all your purchase history, so it knows how to target ads. And then also it can measure how effective those ads are, because after it shows you a commercial, it can then see whether you buy the thing on Amazon.com. So that makes it really valuable for advertisers. They can target their ads effectively and then they can see how effective those ads are. That's something that Netflix and Disney and others find much harder to do.
2: Okay, so they've got ads. What other revenue streams
4: are there? The other way that Amazon hopes to make money in video is by becoming a kind of landlord of video. And what I mean by this is that if you open up the Prime app, it's different from other apps. It shows you content not just from Amazon, but from other providers as well. So whereas when you open the Netflix app or the Disney app, they'll only show you Netflix shows or Disney shows, if you open the Prime app, they'll suggest content from other people. And if you subscribe to another streamer through the Prime app, or if you pay to download something through the Prime app, then Amazon takes a cut of that revenue. And this is a sort of modelled, it seems, on their e-commerce site. These days, something like two-thirds of the stuff sold on Amazon.com is actually sold by third parties, not sold by Amazon itself. And that's kind of a better business for Amazon because they take a cut of those sales, which means it's a really high-margin business. They don't need to provide the stuff. They don't take the risk. They just take a cut. Same with content. If they're not the ones stumping up the cash to make very expensive films or TV series, instead, if they're just taking a cut when they sell other people's stuff, that's a great business to be in. And they're not quite there yet, but that seems to be what they're trying to do. And they've been very successful at that in e-commerce.
2: So Tom, in your view, is this all going to work?
4: I think Amazon's got a good chance of making all this work. I mean, in advertising, They've already made a huge success of their other ad formats and they've got so much data on people that I think their video ad operation is going to be a really formidable thing when it gets going. There are some projections out there. Morgan Stanley, for example, reckons that within just two years, its video ads could be worth more than five billion a year just in America. So it's pretty big business. And in the long run, people think that they could end up being able to charge higher rates for their ads than more or less any other premium video provider simply because they've got so much data on their customers and the ability to measure whether the ads work. The idea of selling other people's content, becoming a kind of landlord, if you like, of streaming, is a trickier one. Other people have tried it. You know, Apple tried to do that and still to some extent is trying to do that. And it's harder than it is to become an e-commerce landlord for various reasons. One is that the number of suppliers of content is much smaller. So whereas when it comes to e-commerce, Amazon has literally millions of suppliers that sell stuff on its marketplace, When it comes to video content, there are only a handful of big studios that create this kind of quality stuff. And so Amazon just has less power over them because there are fewer of them. So they're all individually weaker and they've all got their own way of selling direct to consumers as well through their own streaming services. They've also got less power over consumers because whereas with e-commerce, Amazon's got a market share of something like 40% in the US, when it comes to streaming, the Fire TV platform only has about a 15% share of streaming traffic in America. So again, Amazon just has a bit less clout. It's not easy to become a sort of landlord in video content by any means, but if anybody has a chance of doing it, I think it's Amazon. And I think the advertising business looks like a really solid thing going forward.
2: Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show.
4: Thank you.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic absolutely battered economies, big and small. In the recovery period, it looked for a while there that Britain was still sick in bed, with growth figures well below those of other big economies. But those GDP numbers were based on the data available then. Considering the data available now, maybe things haven't been as bad as statisticians used to think.
5: Revisions to economic data are really common. They're sort of part and parcel of the process of how the data is compiled.
1: Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics correspondent.
5: And to be honest, they rarely make for headline news. They're not the kind of thing that people who don't follow the economy very closely pay much attention to. But what we saw last week from the Office of National Statistics was a really big set of revisions, some dramatic changes. In effect, they found about two percentage points worth of GDP hidden behind a sofa.
1: Okay, but let's put that in context. Is that like finding a couple of shillings behind the sofa or like a £50 note?
5: Oh, it's definitely closer to a £50 note than a couple of shillings. I mean, what the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, have effectively done is to rewrite Britain's recent economic history. So the previously published data, the data that we thought was the picture of the British economy we had until last week, was that at the end of 2021, the economy was still... 1.2 1.2 percentage points below its pre-pandemic size. The ONS now say actually that was wrong. The economy was already 0.6% higher. So it's not just that the economy recovered from the pandemic at a faster pace than previously thought, it sort of changes the picture of the UK relative to other rich countries. So the UK was, before this revision, firmly at the bottom of the group of G7 leading economies, the Global Laggard. After this revision, its performance looks a bit more respectable. It's you know it's climbed out of the relegation zone.
1: So what changed about the story? Why did this note get stuck behind the sofa?
5: Revisions are part and parcel of the process. It's how it works. As more information becomes available, the Office of National Statistics go back, they relook at the numbers, and they check things. That's completely normal. Now, although nearly two percentage points of GDP is a really big number in absolute terms. You know, what we've got to bear in mind is the magnitude of the swings in national output in 2020 and 2021 was without recent precedence. You know, 2020 was the worst year for the economy since the early 1700s. 2021 was a strong bounce back from that. These revisions aren't actually proportionally particularly unusual. It's just that the the underlying swings were so large that even a proportionally small revision adds up to really big numbers. And it's not just that we were getting really big swings in the data in 2020 and 2021. You know, this was the pandemic. This was a very hard time to collect accurate data. You know, I think it's fair to say, you know, filling out forms for the National Statistics Office sort of slipped down the priority list of a lot of firms.
1: I hesitate to ask this, but at my own peril, uh, let's dig into it. What is it that's actually changed to, to give us that headline change in GDP? Yes, there's been a couple of changes. So if we go back to
5: 2020 and the initial hit of the pandemic, the Office of National Statistics now think lots of firms were, rather than running down their inventories and their stockpiles, were actually adding to their piles of unsold stocks. And this sort of build-up in inventory levels is a positive for GDP. So that's all. Part of the revision up in 2020. The biggest story is about 2021. And what we've got there is, you know, the initial estimates for growth that year were mainly based on reported turnover numbers from firms, which is useful and gets you so far. The Office of National Statistics now have a lot more information from less timely but more detailed surveys. And when they look at this, they can look at each sector's. Level of inputs, its level of outputs, rather than just turnover. What they now think is that profit margins were a lot healthier than they initially appeared in quite a few sectors. So that's led to them revising of profits, income, and GDP. And it's not just the headline numbers that have changed; sort of the underlying sectoral composition of that growth has shifted as well. So the wholesale trade, you know, they initially thought had seen growth of. in 2021, then having actually it was 32.4%, you know, a huge revision. Healthcare output's been revised up as well. The broad picture is the service sector has been doing better than initially thought, but manufacturing, construction, agriculture have performed worse than initially thought.
1: So if this is a rewriting then of recent economic history, what what do the history books now say? Do we say that Britain came out of the pandemic better than we previously thought?
5: The initial hit to GDP, to national income during the pandemic, was a bit less severe than initially thought. The bounce back was quite a bit faster. And actually to be fair to these one thing these revisions do is they help explain away some puzzles in the British economic data. So you know, for the last couple of years, what we've seen is this strange picture of very, very tepid economic growth, but surprisingly resilient tax receipts. And now we understand that, you know, tax receipts were not surprisingly resilient. Um, underlying growth was a bit faster than thought. That hiring boom we've seen in the jobs market makes a bit more sense with this new data. It is worth saying that almost all of the revisions were concentrated into just two quarters of activity. The second quarter of 2020 is the pandemic hit and lockdowns took effect. And the second quarter of 2021, after the vaccine rollout, when we got the big reopening wave. So, you know, a a less steep hit and a faster recovery is the big
1: picture. And I wonder if what all of this arises from is better data that arrive later. Surely that same kind of revision might happen elsewhere? 100%.
5: And, you know, the Office of National Statistics are very keen to point out They're one of the first national bodies to update their 2020 and 2021 numbers for what they call supply and use tables. You know, this more detailed look at the inputs and outputs of any other sectors. You know, the ONS are the first to get there and do this. It is very, very likely that as other countries go through this process in the following months, they will be revising their own
1: numbers up. And Britain might then get pushed back to the bottom of the league table or no?
5: Britain might well get pushed down the bottom of the league table. So, you know, the two big changes were... We no longer think the economy is smaller than it was before the pandemic hit. That change is sort of, you know, baked in now. That, that, that one's there to stay. The second change is this change in Britain's relative performance in the global league tables. That one we can't be so sure about.
1: Duncan, thanks very much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
3: When was the
1: last time you used a calculator? I don't mean an app on your phone or a function in a spreadsheet. I mean that physical device in your pocket with the real buttons on it.
3: They used to be everywhere. And then suddenly they were nowhere.
1: Keith Houston is the author of Empire of the Sum, The Rise and Reign of the Pocket Calculator.
3: I last used a calculator at university. I started out doing an astrophysics degree. I wasn't very good at the astral part, and then I realised I wasn't very good at the physics part, and I ended up writing computer programs for a living instead. And so I used a calculator less and less. It's difficult to overstate the importance of calculation. It looks very much as if humans have been counting, and counting is basically just calculating, it's adding one to a previous number. It looks like humans have been counting since long before recorded history. There is a bone, it's a baboon femur and it's called the Lubombo bone. It has 29 notches. It looks as if they were carved by four different people and this is about 42,000 years old. This is considered to be the first mathematical artefact. So humans have been using external devices to calculate for thousands of years probably almost as long as we've been writing anything down. There was a kind of mania with clockwork devices towards the end of the medieval period, heading into the early modern period. Some of the people who lived around about that time looked at these clockwork devices and wondered if there might be some way to do something a bit more useful with them to start to actually calculate. Wilhelm Schickard invented a somewhat practical adding machine. He built this device, which was effectively a series of gear trains, and as you turn the dial, that would add to a running total, so I can add any set of numbers to my running total. It's kind of like an abacus. He ended up dying, I think, of the plague, his machines were lost, and he kind of fell out of memory to an extent. And so a lot of people, when they think about mechanical calculators, they think about Blaise Pascal. He invented or devised a calculating machine, or rather a series of calculating machines, called the Pascalie. Some rich and famous people got their hands on these calculating machines. The Queen of Sweden was one of them. She was almost like an influencer at the time. But he never seemed to get it quite right. Then in England, there was a guy called Samuel Morland, who was more or less a spy. He also dabbled at mechanical calculators. But none of these things quite worked, and it was only in the 19th century, finally, that a French insurance pioneer called Charles Xavier Thomas invented a device called the Arithmometer. And this really is the first time that mechanical calculation, without any need to learn the rules of how an abacus or accounting board work, or even pen and paper, This was the first time where actual computation was externalised. It was put into a device that had its own logical ability to add and subtract and, in some cases, to multiply and divide as well. For a long time, when we talked about computers, we meant people. People whose jobs it was to actually sit down and mechanically work through a particular mathematical problem. This is great. This works. Lots of astronomical problems were solved in this way. The observatory at Greenwich used human computers quite extensively. A number of people who were carrying out these kinds of projects started to think about, okay, can we mechanise this in some way? And this is kind of where the computer comes out of, as in the modern sense. Of course, when we say computer, we mean an electronic device. The calculator and then eventually the pocket calculator went through an evolution, really. It starts with a device called the Casio 14A. This small Japanese startup called Casio. Their most famous product was a finger ring that had a cigarette holder mounted on it so that workers could smoke a cigarette while they were at work or in the bath. But one of the Casio brothers was a bit of an electrical whiz and he had this idea that he could build a calculator out of solenoids Solenoids are uh, kind of electromagnets. This was a wake-up call. This desk-sized device, which was very expensive, was the first reliable, fast, electrically driven calculator, and the rest of the world kind of had to take notice. You eventually arrive at the point where we can build calculators. We have all the logic in a single chip, and there's almost nowhere else for the calculator to go after that point. Casio, I think, was the first company to come up with a musical calculator. They released a synthesizer, which had a built-in calculator, so you could flip a switch as you played on the keys of the synthesizer, instead you were calculating. And then they released one a little bit later, in 1980 in fact, called the VL80, which looked like a calculator, but each key played a musical note, and there was a special edition which was released in conjunction with Kraftwerk's Pocket Calculator song. I'm the, operator my pocket calculator. the calculator, it can be a bit of a nostalgic device. There's something very simple about a calculator, even a very complex calculator. It does one thing, really, and one thing only. And I think for that reason, it's possible to miss it as a kind of symbol of an easier world, whether that's just the world when you were a kid, when you were at school, and a calculator was all you're allowed to have in math class. But I'm not sure that people necessarily miss them in a visceral way, especially because there are so many other ways to access calculation, whether it's in a spreadsheet or a calculator app, or even typing a mathematical expression into Google. I find that absolutely fascinating, that some of the most sophisticated things you can do on a computer still let you type in one plus one equals, and you can see the result. And goodness knows how many data centers or servers are involved in doing that thing, getting that result back to your web browser.
1: And you can read our review of Empire of the Sum on our website at economist.com.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all of our other great podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every single day.
1: And if you're not a subscriber, check out the special offer we have at the moment. A free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link that's in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.